Okay, uh, we'll get started. Uh, thank you all for coming here. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. Um, I know there's a lot of uh, other things going on and people are busy and uh, we seem to have escaped the predicted rain, so that's good. Uh, we have many more viewers online. Um, I want to remind everyone to please uh, turn off your cell phones um, and uh, allow the discussion to take place. So um, Pakistan has long been a very hard nut to crack for US policymakers. Uh, we've had a, a strange, unusual relationship with the country, uh, going back certainly to the 80s and our support with them of militants to uh, push out the Soviets in Afghanistan. Um, and ever since, we've kind of had this problem of uh, being strong allies with a country, especially in the post 9-11 era, um, engaging in lots of economic and military and intelligence cooperation, um, but also dealing with this fact that uh, Pakistan has its own sets of interests uh, that don't always uh, align with the United States and has relationships with militant groups as a matter of policy that seem problematic from the standpoint of U.S. interests, um, particularly in Afghanistan and counterterrorism interests uh, overall. Um, so we are uh, here to discuss this problem. Um, uh, the, the source material for today's discussion is this uh, recently published Cato policy analysis uh, double game, why Pakistan supports militants and resists U.S. pressure to stop. Um, the author of this report is Sahar Khan, to my right here. She's a visiting research fellow at the Cato Institute's Defense and Foreign Policy Department. Her research covers militancy, counterterrorism, South Asia, the Middle East. Um, she has a Ph.D., from uh, the University of California, Irvine in uh, political science. Robin Raphael is uh, an expert in political security and economic development issues in South Asia and the Middle East. Uh, she's a career foreign service officer. She's worked on foreign affairs for nearly 40 years in the Department of uh, State, uh, USAID, Department of Defense. Uh, she served as Assistant Secretary of State for South Asia um, ambassador to, to Tunisia, vice president of the National Defense University and deputy special inspector general for Iraq reconstruction. Very apropos of today's discussion, she also managed the sharp increase in development assistant to Pakistan under the late ambassador Richard Holbrook. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll get started. I'm, I'll ask Sahar to come up and, and present and uh, Ms. Rafael will give her comments after. Well, thank you, everybody, um, for coming this morning. Um, before I start, I wanted to thank the Defense and Foreign Policy Studies Department here at Cato, where I've been in residence for the past year, especially John Glazer over here, who's read numerous drafts of this report. So thank you for that. Um, for those of us who have been uh, longtime observers of the U.S.-Pakistan relationship, I don't think it comes as a big surprise that um, currently the U.S.-Pakistan relationship is at an all-time low. In January of this year, President Trump tweeted, and I quote, 
The United States has foolishly given Pakistan more than $33 billion in aid over the last 15 years, and they have given us nothing but lies and deceit, thinking of our leaders as fools. They give safe haven to the terrorists we hunt in Afghanistan with little help, no more, end quote. Now, the Pakistani government reacted swiftly. The foreign minister at the time said that this tweet jeopardized the U.S.-Pakistan partnership in the ongoing global war on terror. The Ministry of Defense alluded to Afghanistan, saying that this tweet and the Trump administration's policies ignores any cross-border um, havens that exist in Afghanistan from which terrorists attack Pakistani citizens. Um, that said, um, the current there's a new government in Pakistan under the leadership of Imran Khan, and this is the first time he's prime minister, and there's a new foreign minister as well. And this government, like past Pakistani administrations, also maintains that um, not only does Pakistan not sponsor militant groups, but if there were any safe havens that existed in the tribal areas in the northwest of the country that border Afghanistan, these safe havens no longer exist because of various counterinsurgency campaigns that the Pakistani military has launched since 2009. Now, after the tweet and the subsequent Twitter for, um, storm that followed, the Trump administration has done a variety of actions. They've restricted security and military aid. Um, they have lobbied to put Pakistan on the Financial Action Task Force gray list. For those of you who, who may not know, the FATF is an intergovernmental um, organization that focuses on countering um, terrorist financing and working on strengthening anti-money laundering um, skills of the countries. And so to be on the country's gray list is for those countries like Pakistan who have anti-money laundering mechanisms, but they have certain loopholes in them. And so the logic is, if a country is placed on a gray list, it will actually incite the country to fix these loopholes to eventually improve implementation of anti-military, anti I mean, sorry, anti-money laundering mechanisms and counterterrorism financing. So the U.S. lobbied to put Pakistan on this list, and Pakistan has been on this list um, since April of this year. Um, the U excuse me, the U.S. has also um, restricted Pakistani military from um, taking part in U.S. education programs, for example, IMET or the International Military Education Training Program has been suspended for Pakistani um, senior officials. So basically, there's been a variety of these actions, not just the ones that I mentioned. And the goal of these actions is that if the U.S. you know restricts security and military aid, um, engages in selective sanctioning, and perhaps even limits um, education training programs with military officers, this will incite Pakistan to stop sponsoring militant groups. But unfortunately, um, this has not happened. And first of all, most of these actions that I discussed have been done by past administrations as well. So for example, the Obama administration also put Pakistan on the FATF list, um, and it was on that list from 2012 to 2015. Yet throughout those years, Pakistan continued to sponsor militant groups. So then the question becomes, why does Pakistan sponsor militant groups? And then why is the U.S. unable to stop Pakistan from doing so? Um, now, first of all, there's the conventional wisdom surrounding the U.S.-Pakistan relationship in, in D.C. And that conventional wisdom is that the Pakistanis, Pakistan's military establishment, the intelligence agencies, specifically the Inter-Services Intelligence, or the ISI, which is the premier intelligence organization of the country, that the military establishment and the ISI are the ones who use and sponsor militant groups. And by sponsorship, I mean providing arms and ammunitions, turning a blind eye to criminal activities, providing safe havens, etc. So Washington is not wrong, um, and there's been a lot of empirical evidence showing that there is indeed a link between the military establishment, intelligence, and militant groups. But 
my report focuses on the civilian side of the equation. How do the civilian counterterrorism bureaucracies operating in the country facilitate sponsorship, or do they or do they not? Um, this report actually stems from my dissertation research, which focused on the civilian side of, of Pakistan's counterterrorism. Um, and it was driven by this puzzle that I saw that perhaps many of you have also seen too, where um, leaders of militant groups or prominent high-ranking members of militant groups in Pakistan get arrested. Um, and then they are let go because of lack of evidence. So, for example, um, even if some of these leaders or members of groups are, um, if they are, if they go to court, the court says, "Well, we cannot um, convict them because of lack of evidence," or the evidence that was permitted in the court for their case was impermissible in the first place. So, this results in basically leaders being let go. Some examples that come to mind are. Um, Zakir Rahman Lakvi, who is the leader of the Lashkar e Taiba, which is an organization that um, conducts militant attacks in India and was responsible for the 2008 Mumbai attack. Now, Lakvi was arrested by Pakistani authorities in December 2008. He was tried in an anti terrorism court in 2009 and found guilty. But in 2015, he was let go, released on bail, and he operates freely in the country still. Another leader that comes to mind is Flazur Rahman Khalil, who is also a leader of a prominent militant group called um, Harkatul Mujahideen. Um, and it also launches attacks in India and Afghanistan. And he specifically was arrested for taking militants to Afghanistan in 2004. Um, an anti-terrorism court found him guilty, and yet he was released in 2014. Um, Carla Gall of the New York Times has sort of focused on him extensively and indicated that not only does he live in Islamabad, which is the capital of the country, but he enjoys links with the military um, as well. So, and there are several other examples, especially for those of us who follow this. And so um, the puzzle became why is the civilian side unable to um, arrest these people and, and convict these people um, effectively? So my quest to get to the bottom of this led me to do field work in Pakistan in 2015, where I interviewed 92 people who operate in the counterterrorism realm of the country. So that involved police investigators, officers, anti-terrorism court prosecutors, lawyers, judges, academics, journalists, analysts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what I found was that when it comes to counterterrorism, the civilian side and the military establishment or the military side are a lot more aligned than we think. Now, Pakistan is not only accused of sponsoring militant groups, but they're also accused of being selective about the militant groups that they counter that are operating within the country. And my research indicates that the civilian side not only sort of um, listens to the military establishment when it comes to militant sponsorship, but are very much complicit um, in allowing this um, selective strategy of the state to exist. Now, why does this exist? Why there is a civil military imbalance in Pakistan, but in counterterrorism, this imbalance seems a little less. So why is that the case? The first reason is um, because of the military establishment's strengths. Strength. So um, Pakistan has been independent for 71 years, and it has spent more than half of its life under military rule, which basically means that the military establishment has evolved into something more than a simple military. Now, it does function as a proper military. It's a professional organization. It protects the borders, and it's a merit-based system um, a lot more than, say, other institutions in the country. But it also, because it has ruled for so long, it also has political and economic interests. So for example, the Pakistani military um, owns vocational training centers and pharmaceutical companies. They make cereal and cheese. They're heavily involved in real estate, et cetera, et cetera. So they're very much 
part of the fabric of, of Pakistani society, unlike militaries that we see sort of um, all over the world. Um, the second reason why the civil military alignment exists within counterterrorism um, is because, to some extent, because of the US-Pakistan relationship. Now, the United States has generally preferred to work with the military establishment of the country because it's less corrupt and it is a little more effective than, say, the civilian side. But at the same time, the US administrations, almost all of them, have accused Pakistan of sponsoring militant groups and harming US interests. So my report um, highlights that basically the reason why US policies fail is because they only focus on this one dimension of the relationship, which is the connection between the military establishment, intelligence agencies, and militant groups. And they kind of either overlook or they ignore the importance of the civilian side of the equation. And because of that, US policies tend to focus on the military establishment, cutting aid and security to the military establishment, punishing them in some way, and hoping that they will stop militant sponsorship. And that obviously has not worked. Now, several of you have raised your eyebrows of what, what do I mean by this sort of civilian counterterrorism bureaucracy? What is that a big term or slogan or what it is? So what I mean by that is basically, Pakistan's anti-terrorism laws, and there are about 16 of them, um, they're the ones who form this bureaucracy. So sort of like the equivalent of the Department of Defense, Homeland Security, et cetera, that, that Pakistan has. Um, the main law is the Anti-Terrorism Act of 1997, but there are about 16 others, and some of them are um, you know, based on colonial times, some of them are more modern, and essentially they form this sort of uh, legal framework of how the state conducts domestic counterterrorism. So a lot of these laws, unfortunately, political leaders have used them to their advantage and have manipulated them to increase their political legitimacy. So for example, um, President Pervez Musharraf, who was a military dictator from 1999 to 2007, when he ousted the prime minister at the time, Nawaz Sharif, he wanted to not just oust the prime minister, he wanted the prime minister in jail. Um, and so instead of using the regular criminal laws, he actually manipulated the Anti-Terrorism Act of 1997 to, and broadened the definition of terrorism. So according to Pakistan, terrorism also includes rape, um, kidnapping by ransom, targeting the police, um, um, and a variety of other things. It's sort of like a, anything under the sun goes if it's, if it's under... Um, the label of terrorism. So Musharraf essentially first expanded uh, the definition of terrorism, and then he went after Nawaz Sharif. And Nawaz Sharif was tried in an anti-terrorism court, um, and there were some uh, charges against him. And eventually, he was exiled in Saudi Arabia. He came back, um, but that's a story for a different time. But basically, President Musharraf essentially manipulated the anti-terrorism laws to his advantage. Now, the judiciary has also participated in counterterrorism. Um, Any time that any anti-terrorism law or its amendment has found itself in the court where its constitutionality has been questioned. The Supreme Court especially has always sided with the executive branch and has always said that these laws or these amendments to these laws were passed in a state of emergency. And because the state is in a state of emergency, it allows the executive certain privileges. Um, so generally what it has done is allowed the judiciary to sort of back away from counterterrorism, saying that this is very much between the legislative branch and the executive branch, which has created certain, certain issues just within the separation of power paradigm. Um, what it's also done, the judiciary, is um, it's accepted parallel court systems. Now, I mentioned anti-terrorism courts several times. Now, anti-terrorism courts are not part of the regular criminal justice system of the country. They are separate courts that have existed since the 19... 
1980s, uh, 1990s, um, and they operate all over the country. They're about, at least in 2015 when I went to Pakistan, um, there were 62 of them operating um, in all of the provinces and in some of the tribal areas. Um, these are courts where if somebody is tried or charged under the Anti-Terrorism Act, you will go and be tried in the anti-terrorism court. So th this is a separate court structure that exists separate from the criminal justice system. And the Supreme Court um, has basically said that, that this is okay when it was um, put into question. Um, and of course, the anti-terrorism laws have also affected um, the police and how the police conducts um, not only in internal security, but also how it sort of counters militant groups operating within the country. Um, and so with the police, um, the Pakistani police is a provincial organization. Every province has its own police organization. Um, and these laws have essentially given the police certain um, privileges that it would not give the police in certain other areas. So even though the police remains weak, um, and there's been a lot of call for reform, um, there is a lot of corruption, but these anti-terrorism laws, the collection of them has done is allowed the police to sort of detain people without charges, detain people in undisclosed locations, um, to kill, uh, shoot at will, um, and it's sort of led to um, a variety of racial profiling. Um, the latest has been sort of going after the Pashtun movement, um, the Pashtun population that has resulted in another sort of civil rights act movement that's been um, in the country since the beginning of this year. So the police is very much sort of, it's had a turf war with the military and paramilitary organizations when it comes to counterterrorism, but its quest is to become more like the military. It wants to weaponize, it wants to have certain privileges that the military has when it comes to defining terrorism and operating within um, countering militant groups. So of course, how these institutions operate separately, how the routines have developed separately are sort of a separate issue. You can analyze each institution on its own merit. But when you look at them from a bird's eye view, right, from far away, you see that collectively, these agencies that are supposed to be countering militant groups within the country, they do so, but to some extent. And while they're countering these militant groups, not only have they facilitated the state's policy of sponsorship, but they have also engaged the state in very, being very selective in which groups it counters. So Pakistan has gone, off, gone after lashkar e changvi which is a militant organization um, that, you know, conducts attacks in, in, in Indian-administered Kashmir, yet is very reluctant to go after lashkar e taiba which is a group that I mentioned earlier, whose leader has been set um, free since 2015. So there is very much a sort of distinction going on between good and bad um, groups, and the civilian side has been complicit in this. Now, of course, what does this mean for U.S.-Pakistan relations? First of all, you know, I, I don't think that the United States can convince Pakistan to stop sponsoring militant groups. And I think the United States needs to stop trying. First of all, when it tries to convince another state to change its policy because of US interests, it's grossly overestimating its ability to do so. Pakistan has a policy of militant sponsorship. It sponsors militant groups, but that's not just associated with its relationship with the United States. It has a regional calculus and a security calculus of its own um, that you know, won't change because the US cuts military aid or security aid. And this is something we've seen over the past two, three decades as, as well. Um, the second point is that just because Pakistan sponsors militant groups doesn't mean that the US can't have a productive relationship with the country. Now, first of all, Pakistan is not the only country to use militant, violent, non-state actors for strategic goals. I mean, China, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Israel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, has used militant groups as proxies to achieve a variety of goals. So Pakistan is really not unique when you think about it. 
But I do think that the U.S. can have a good and productive relationship with Pakistan if it focuses on areas of mutual interest. So one area would be, for example, securing Pakistan's nuclear arsenal. It is in both countries' interests to ensure that Pakistan's nuclear weapons do not go in the hands of militant groups. Another area that I specifically focus on while I've been here at Cato has been the war in Afghanistan. I think that the U.S. and Pakistan can actually align when it comes to Afghanistan um, and, and a peace process that might last. So for example, just of, of, of recently throughout the summer, there was a ceasefire in June. And in July, Ambassador Alice Wells, who is the Assistant Secretary of S South and Central Asia, met with Taliban officials um, in Doha in their office with the consent of the Afghan government um, in this quest of sort of having an Afghan-led and Afghan-owned peace process. And the U.S. administration has also asked Pakistan to facilitate talks with the Taliban. And so if the Taliban, if, if Pakistan can actually be successful in leveraging um, its relationship with the Taliban, getting them to talk to the Afghan government along with, with U.S. officials, um, I think that might actually open up a real peace process that might potentially open up the doors for political settlement, allowing for U.S. troops to withdraw. So basically, my main point is, it is unfortunate that Pakistan sponsors militant groups. And Pakistan is certainly paying the price for its policy, not only in terms of its international reputation, but from domestic concerns as well. Like, this is not a country that is immune from its use of militant groups. But I don't think the U.S. can stop Pakistan from sponsoring militant groups. And I think that it needs to try stopping, um, try to stop itself from trying to stop Pakistan's militancy, if that makes sense. But basically, um, I think the US and Pakistan can have a very productive relationship. Um, and I think it would be better for US interests and bilateral relationship in general, if they sort of take militancy and militant sponsorship off the table and focus on areas of mutual interest. One of them would be ending the war in Afghanistan. So thank you for listening, and I welcome your questions. Thanks very much um, for the invitation to Cato, and I'd like to commend Sahar on her dissertation and her recent article. I think there are many basic truths there that I'll talk a bit about this morning. And I also want to thank all of you for being here today. I know there was a very specific competing event, which we'll all be wanting to catch up on later, but I appreciate your, your presence here today. Uh, as I said, Sahar's paper uh, tells some very basic truths. The primary one is that civilians in Pakistan, by and large, agree with military policies on particularly the support of the Afghan Taliban. They see it as a hedge against possible chaos in Afghanistan and undue Indian influence in Afghanistan. So on, on the Afghan side, at least, the militant policy really is, as Sahara said, a whole of government policy. I, I want to make a caveat on the Indian side. Um, I think the civilians are much more skeptical of the Lashkar al-Taiba L.E.T. and other groups that have supported the Kashmir militancy in India. I think uh, this policy has largely backfired. Um, it hasn't forced India to negotiate on Kashmir and really has given India the upper hand internationally. And of course, the problem now is that LET controls a vote bank in southern Punjab, and there's fear of blowback if the military takes them on. 
One effort has been made to mainstream uh, these groups into the political process. That's been very controversial. So I would bracket the Indian side, and I will focus on the Afghanistan side. Another thing that Sahar's paper does is to quickly review the history of U.S. support for jihadist movements. I think a lot of people that have become involved in this debate of late don't know or have forgotten that the U.S. government actually supported a lot of these same people in the 1980s when uh, we were trying to push the Soviets out of Afghanistan. So that's an important piece of history to um, remember. And I think uh, Sahar also mentioned that the U.S. correctly sees an inconsistency in the Pakistani approach. Um, Pakistan will support jihadist militants on the one hand uh, in Afghanistan and India for that matter, but when it comes to their own problem with uh, the TTP, the Pakistani Taliban, they crack down very hard. So this has led to this uh, notion that you hear that there are good Taliban, the Afghans, and bad Taliban, uh, the TTP. And in any case, uh, I think Pakistan has, has realized that the hard tactics, the very harsh tactics that they've used um, with the TTP have spawned resistance. Uh, one of the, the new elements we now see is the Pashtun um, uh, movement coming out of the tribal areas uh, demanding more civil rights for the Pashtuns. So it's a... It's a um, two-edged sword being harsh with militants. Sahar is also right that the legislature and the courts have supported uh, the military with expanding executive powers, limiting civilian judicial oversight, curbing civil liberties, including the media. Um, and I have to admit that the U.S. has by and large accepted these policies and in some cases supported them. Um, She's right that the U.S. response to Pakistan's support for the Taliban is sanctions. These sanctions are focused on the military but aren't exclusively on the military. We've cut assistance, uh, the military coalition support fund, military training for Pakistani officers in the U.S. Um, there's also the financial uh, task force that Sahar talked about. And many fear that the next step will be to take away Pakistan's uh, non-NATO ally status, which affects its ability to acquire uh, U.S. weaponry. And it's also true that many of these tactics have been tried, to, uh, tried before by other administrations and haven't really worked. Uh, similarly, the terrorist designations uh, rarely have had an effect. Um, as we all remember, the famous saying, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. So we supported the Afghan Mujahideen back in the 80s, but now some of those same people are designated terrorists by us. Um, so it's, it depends on which side of the fence you're sitting on. And as for the, uh, the FATAB designation, that's political to a large degree. For the longest time, we didn't move against Pakistan. Nothing much changed, but then we lobbied against them in this forest. So it's all relative and political and not based entirely on a consistent assessment of the fact. So why does Pakistan support these militants? Again, focusing on Afghanistan. Back in the 90s, when Pakistan was supporting the Taliban, 
the whole issue was strategic depth uh, so that if they were attacked by India in the east, they'd have somewhere to fall back in the west in Afghanistan, but also a corridor to Central Asia for trade and a desire to have Pashtuns dominating the government in Afghanistan, Pashtuns being the largest tribal group in Afghanistan, and also um, there are Pashtuns on the other side of the border, and Pakistan has long been concerned about Afghan Pashtuns and Pakistani Pashtuns getting together to create a Pashtunistan. Uh, I think as I look back, there was a real hubris among the Pakistanis after the Soviet withdrawal because Pakistan had basically been in charge of the money and distributing the goodies, the munitions and so on, and, and arms to the various Afghan groups. And I think they really did get the sense that they could manipulate and be puppeteers with these groups. And then, of course, they used them um, and, uh, to exfiltrate into uh, Kashmir and, and support the insurgency there. So altogether, I'd say the 1980s went to the Pakistanis' heads and they, they began to think they could have more control over these militant groups than they could. Uh, after 9-11, Pakistan still wanted Pashtuns in the Afghan government. Um, and they were concerned that the US had sided too much with the Northern Alliance, the Tajiks, Uzbeks, and so on. Um, who had been friendly with India. So that concern about Pashtuns continued. Uh, but today, I think a big part of the issue is that Pakistan is afraid to create an enemy out of the Haqqanis, the group that uh, the US focuses on and is concerned about organizing attacks across the border in Afghanistan. Uh, the Haqqanis have lived in Pakistan for three plus decades. They're deeply embedded in communities there. Their families are there and so on. And they have a lot of influence. And the Pakistani military and Pakistanis in general say, well, these groups aren't threatening us. We have other groups who are threatening us. Our army is overextended. Um, as one military expert said the other day, one third of the army is on the Indian border, another third is on the Afghan border, and the, the remaining third is training to go one place or the other. So they feel they can't take on another group. Um, and then another reason for <laughs> supporting these groups is that the Pakistanis have not been clear in recent years what the US thinks the end game is. In, um, in Afghanistan. So they have hedged uh, against the day that the US leaves precipitously. Uh, they believe that if the US leaves, maybe India will fill the void and so on. So they're nervous and they're hedging. Um, and then finally, the Pakistanis believe that the Haqqanis could be part of a negotiated solution in Afghanistan, that they they are an important segment of the Taliban. They have influence that could be useful in a negotiated settlement. Uh, so what they say is, what do you want to do? You want us to uh, deliver them to the negotiating table, or do you want us to kill them? You know, this, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to, to the Pakistanis. So I would close this um, 
idea of why the Pakistanis support the militants uh, in Afghanistan just by saying that the Pakistani policy is not totally irrational. Um, they're hedging because they're not sure what the U.S. is going to do. They fear India. Uh, I think their, their fears on both counts are exaggerated, but they're not irrational. Now, I'd like to make some observations about the U.S. response uh, to Pakistani policy. The Trump administration has been very proud of their policy. They say they are the only ones that have had the nerve to call out the Pakistanis on, on terrorism, and they're squeezing them by cutting aid and lowering the level of bilateral contacts, narrowing the agenda exclusively to talk about militants and specifically the Khanis, and altogether insisting they do more. But as Sahar has pointed out, that is not new. Variations on this theme have been tried over the years. None of them have really worked. Um, this administration, too, is particularly moralistic in its tone uh, when it criticizes Pakistan for supporting terrorist pro proxies. And I think many in Pakistan and perhaps other areas see this as a bit hypocritical because, again, as Sahar pointed out, this is not unusual. Proxies are a well-known tool in any asymmetric context uh, or a context in which a country doesn't want to put boots on the ground. Uh, so a lot of countries use this. Russia does it, Iran does it, and the United States does it. So it's really not unusual. I would also say about the U.S. that we're a bit reluctant to um, admit our mistakes. Uh, the biggest one um, many experts are beginning to talk more and more about is that the Taliban were excluded from the Bonn Conference in late 2001 when all the Afghan factions were brought together uh, to decide on the future of Afghanistan. And I think many speculate that if they had been there by this point, 17 years later, they would have been much diminished from what they are now. Um, cutting military and even civilian assistance, I would argue, is not bad in and of itself. Um, you know, if the U.S. doesn't think it's getting value for money, it's you know, perfectly entitled to cut back or eliminate various uh, programs. We don't have a contractual obligation to give money to Pakistan or any other country for that matter. But at the same time, it's not accurate to say that we've got nothing uh, for this assistance. We've gotten very close cooperation with the Pakistanis on taking out al-Qaeda, from the battlefield, we've gotten free access to Afghanistan through the ground lines of communication, airlines of communication. Maybe we didn't get all we wanted, but we, we certainly got a lot. Um, and I would add one other point here, and that is it is really hard to know the facts of the matter in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Pakistani tell, Pakistanis tell us that they've driven a lot of the... Haqqani and Afghan Taliban fighters across the border. You know, I, I think we don't actually know. We know that the leadership's still in Pakistan, but I think there may have been a lot of them that have gone back across. Um, who's responsible for the various attacks inside Afghanistan? I'm not sure we always know. U.S. commanders have recently admitted that a lot more of the attacks in Kabul now are done by ISIS rather than um, the Haqqanis and the Taliban. 
Um, so I think it's, it's really important to just be a little bit humble about how much we actually know goes on in this very wild mountainous territory. Um, and that might make us a little more realistic about what to expect. Now, what do the Pakistanis um, want in Afghanistan? From talking to them, I mean, they obviously need to speak for themselves, but my understanding is they want an end to the fighting. You know, the, the fighting has cost them dearly in economic terms, in um, deaths both of military forces and civilians over the years, in drugs, gun culture, all the rest of it. They would like that to stop. They want consideration for their legitimate security concerns with India. And they want some kind of constraints on India's role in Afghanistan. They want at least implicit recognition of the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, the so-called Durand Line, and some respect for their efforts to build a border fence to check the traffic that comes back and forth across this border. It's an enormous undertaking, um, but too often I think we scoff at them for trying to do this, and in fact it's probably not a bad idea. They, they want a government in Afghanistan that has a significant Pashtun voice. This was the same uh, after the Russians left, same after 9-11. That's uh, continued. They want repatriation of more of the Afghan refugees. They sometimes uh, will say, and I think believe, that they haven't received uh, sufficient credit for having housed and fed, um, you know, three, four million Afghan refugees over the years. Uh, they want a reconciliation process in Afghanistan that legitimizes the Taliban as a political movement and gives them some kind of voice in the government. But what I have heard from Pakistanis is they most decidedly do not want a Taliban government in Kabul. That is not the object, the exercise from, from their point of view. Uh, they're a bit nervous about U.S. direct talks with the Taliban. Um, they want to be involved in this whole reconciliation process. Um, but as I say, they don't want the Taliban to exclusively come out and talk, as far as I know from talking with them. And what I would say in terms of what the Pakistanis want in Afghanistan, there's nothing there that the U.S. can't live with. Uh, so let me just briefly, in closing, go through what I think the U.S. should do. Um, our policy has been thus far to try and bludgeon the Taliban to the negotiating table, to divide them, to um, try and get some reconcilable Taliban to join and split from the others and so on and to squeeze Pakistan, as Sahar and I have both uh, described. This hasn't worked. Um, and I think it's, it's high time, and I think we actually are reaching this point, we should have reached it a long time ago in my view, to recognize that we have a military stalemate. Uh, the Taliban can't win, but we can't win either. Um, so what do we need to do? The US needs to develop a mutually agreed upon set of bottom lines um, for Afghanistan and political talks that are agreed among all agencies. 
I think everyone has noticed over the last few years that there's not a consistent message in Washington. You hear some things from the State Department, some things from the White House, some things from, from the Pentagon, some from the intelligence community. We really need to work on um, a mutually agreed upon approach. And this includes a definition of what we want the U.S. enduring presence in Afghanistan to be uh, after a political solution. U.S. officials are now saying we want an enduring presence in Afghanistan, but we need to articulate what that means. We need to prioritize security. You know, we went to Afghanistan in the first place um, because we were attacked uh, uh, by people who's, uh, who were the planning of which was done largely in the impetus uh, done uh, from Al-Qaeda in, Af in Afghanistan. But we've gotten, we've had mission creep uh, of uh, the highest order. So we really need to remember that we need to focus on what kind of guarantees we can get that that kind of attack can never happen again. Um, we need to de-demonize the Taliban enough that we can actually seriously talk with them. I think this has been a, a big problem. We fail to realize they are Afghans, they are indigenous to Afghanistan, they're not ISIS. Um, they are much more conservative than we would like. They have practices and have done things that we don't like, but they are an indigenous group and they, they need to be dealt with in that fashion. And I think that the U.S. government has taking a, uh, taken a really good step in this regard by appointing Ambassador Halilzad, who's a very experienced uh, negotiator. He certainly knows the culture. He knows many of the players. Uh, and he has uh, good relationships with all the agencies and the government now. So I think that's a really good um, step forward. And I think we need to remember that any negotiations don't just include the Taliban and the Afghan government. There are many other stakeholders. There's, of course, the political opposition, but there are also women's groups, civil society, the peace marchers, youth, and so on. And all these groups need some kind of voice in uh, the future dispensation of Pakistan. Um, we shouldn't, as, as some administrative, <laughs> administration officials have suggested, we shouldn't depend on the Taliban to be the creative and innovative party in these discussions. Um, we need to take the initiative. We need to be creative. We need to be innovative in order to get negotiations going. Um, and finally, I would say, as Sahar, the reiterated point that Sahar has made, we shouldn't try to get the Pakistani civilians to challenge the military. Um, we really need to draw the Pakistanis into a serious negotiation to get them to help define um, how the fighting can be de-escalated, de what kind of settlement in Afghanistan would be acceptable to them and other countries in the region. And we, we really need to get started on this and accelerate the process because time really isn't on our side. Thank you very much. Okay, well, I consider taking moderator's privilege and asking the first question, but I think I'll just open it up. Um, uh, 
couple ground rules. Please wait for the microphone to come to you. Uh, even if we can hear you and you project, the, the people watching uh, on the internet at home uh, need the microphone. Please wait to be called on. Uh, please ask a question. Uh, don't make a speech. Anyone? Okay, we've got one here on the aisle. Right there. And please identify yourself. Thank uh, you. Thank you. My name is David Koss, and I'm here in a private capacity. Um, what I'm concerned about, for apart from all the strategic and, and very difficult uh, political questions, but is that uh, my understanding, you know, the supporting militant groups is one thing, but they're supporting militant groups that are killing Americans. And it seems to me, doesn't, doesn't this put a whole different uh, point on it, on the, on the discussions and how to deal with them and so on, that, that you know, how, how can you go forward until that stops, I guess is really my question. Thank you. Either of you? Sure. So um, actually, that's a, that is a very good point. And I think that was sort of one of the main concerns between U.S. and Pakistan. And that's why the U.S. was, you know, perhaps annoyed with Pakistan for, for sponsoring certain militant groups. But as of late, um, U.S. casualties in Afghanistan have decreased exponentially. And in fact, um, most of the attacks that the Taliban, Haqqani Network, um, ISIS, or any other group that has that has um, conducted attacks in Afghanistan have actually killed Afghani civilians and have targeted Afghani national security forces. So when you think about it from, from a U.S. casualty point of view, U.S. casualties aren't really a factor um, anymore. So um, that is perhaps another reason why it seems um, almost illogical to me um, as to why the U.S. insists on Pakistan stopping its sponsorship of militant groups because it's a policy that the U.S. actually does not have much control over. I would, I would simply add that the object of the exercise uh, should be um, to do something that works. <laughs> you know? And squeezing the Pakistani, stopping uh, you know, aid and all the rest of it uh, distracts us from focusing on something that would work. And I would argue that is getting a political negotiation going. Um, so I think that's really important. And, of course, part of the object of the exercise ultimately is to decrease the U.S. military footprint. You know, I don't know what the administration will decide, as I say, in terms of what their enduring presence is. Um, but certainly we don't want them to be vulnerable to these sorts of attacks, which means we need a policy that's more effective. Over in the corner by the door there. Hi, Aram Heather at Georgetown University. Um, Sahar, this is for, and thanks for the wonderful talk. Um, I think I appreciate both of your attention to the practicality of working with the Pakistani government right now. And Ambassador, I, I appreciate your comments that, you know, how much can we squeeze the Pakistani government to improve its relationships with its, with its own army? My concern is that enabling the army to have its pet militants isn't good for democracy in Pakistan. And we've seen this happen repeatedly over the last few years. We have democratically elected governments that are in no position to even have defense ministries that are ruled by civilian leadership. Um, is there any 
way in which we can see uh, civilian government evolving in a way that maybe retracts its influence in Afghanistan and stops trying to make friends with extremely unsavory characters who are not just bad for the region, but bad for domestic terrorism as well, such as the people who just got elected, um, the, uh, the, uh, the TLP. I'm sure. So I know I think that's a great question. And I think that's sort of one of the frustrations with Pakistan too, right? That it's not simply a civil military imbalance. Um, the democratic process has been expe- exceptionally slow in Pakistan um, for a variety of reasons. One of that is because the civilian side is extremely corrupt and the corruption is in real sense has decayed political institutions across the board. A lot of it is because the military is strong and has maintained its strength. Um, but to your point of whether or not... Um, you know, uh, and this is something I talk about in the paper as well, that the, the U.S. is generally preferred working with the military leadership just because the military leadership has tended to be more effective leaders. Now, that does not mean that civilians cannot be effective leaders. And I think the one thing that we have to realize is that democratic processes are extremely slow, um, which is, I suppose, a non-answer to your question. But it's almost like, you know, I feel like if we insist, for example, this is the first time Imran Khan is prime minister. If we insist that he challenge the military, he's going to be out of power very soon. Um, and I think what's important to understand is that all of these institutions are very hard to change. They create bureaucratic routines that sort of continue on, um, regardless of how uh, the politics might be changing as well. So, yeah, I do think that hopefully one day... Um, the Pakistani military will be beholden to the civilian side. I don't think that's going to happen under the Imran Khan administration. I don't think that's going to happen in the next, honestly, 10 years, but perhaps in 25 years. That said, um, the militant sponsorship aspect of it is something that the civilian side also engages in because their distinction between countering various militant groups is based on how they view these militant groups themselves. Some of them um, don't attack the Pakistani state. They don't attack Pakistani citizens. And so they're not an existential crisis for the Pakistani state. And so for both the military and civilian side, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it, it, they exist in Pakistan, and that's annoying, and it hurts Pakistan's credibility. But as far as hurting Pakistan's democratic process, I don't think it hurts them that much. And this is sort of what hedging, what the civilian side is also hedging against. So um, basically, I think it's going to be extremely slow. And hopefully one day I'll be talking at a think tank about how the military has become beholden to the civilian side. But I'm not holding my breath. So hopefully I'll have a long career. <laughs> so while we're on the, on the topic of uh, how difficult it can be to change Pakistani policy and certainly internal politics and so on, you know, um, if we step back a bit and, and ask why is it so important for U.S. interests that uh, Pakistan have this or that policy towards militants or this or that civil military balance, the reason, the answer is because we're in Afghanistan, right? That's why it's important what happens with Pakistani policy. 17-year-long um, war in Afghanistan, almost all the experts say it's unwinnable. You know, uh, short of simply withdrawing, which I think is a more viable and uh, intelligent policy than it often gets credit for. But, I mean, the, the idea of diplomacy is to create some kind of stable uh, post-U.S. occupation uh, arrangement that will allow a U.S. withdrawal without kind of negative consequences. And this brings up safe haven issues. Is it really all that 
much of a problem for anti-U.S. militants to exist in Afghanistan. Uh, the trope about how uh, the Al-Qaeda and Taliban presence in Afghanistan in the lead up to 9-11 was operational uh, to, uh, operationally useful for the, for the September 11th attacks, I think is not persuasive. The, pl the attacks were planned in Europe and the United States and Afghanistan. Territorial safe havens uh, of this kind in a time of borderless instant communications and so on doesn't seem all that important. So do we need to task ourselves with the challenge of changing Pakistani politics and uh, policies on counterterrorism, or can we just leave? Well, first I would, I would like to challenge the assumption that Pakistan is only important because of the war in Afghanistan. Um, clearly that is our focus now, and that is the most urgent of our issues with, with Pakistan. But Pakistan's a, an important country. You know, it's got a population of 200 million, it's got resources, it's got the, by some measure, the sixth, seventh largest army in the world, it's got nuclear weapons, it's got uh, entrepreneurial talent, um, and so on. So it's an important country in and of itself, uh, aside from the fact that it's bordering on Afghanistan. Um, as to the, the safe havens, if, if, <laughs> you know, if the Afghan Taliban were not fighting um, the Afghan government in what is essentially a civil war, if they weren't fighting anymore, then clearly it wouldn't matter where they were. Uh, so I think, again, we've got to look at some of the underlying causes here. Um, and as to the military in Pakistan, it's had an outsized role since Pakistan's inception. One cannot quarrel with that. Uh, but part of the reason that's been true is that the civilian governments have been weak. Governance has been ineffective. Um, there's been a great deal of corruption. Um, and that's not going to stop overnight just because there's a new prime minister who's focused on it. Um, and it's going to take time for these, for the civilian institutions to rise to the occasion so that the military is naturally um, returns to its much more appropriate place. Um, as to what the U.S. government can do about that, I would say actually not very much. Um, I think we have tried to be conscious, as Sahar mentioned, that uh, the U.S. deals a lot with the military in, in Pakistan because they're the ones that seem to be able to deliver. We have consciously tried to pay more attention to the civilian side, to pay more attention to the legislature, you know, in terms of, of uh, people that we meet with when VIPs visit. I think we should continue to do that. Um, but we fool ourselves if we think we can be uh, much uh, of an element of change there. Okay, I think we have time for one more. Why don't we go on the side here, uh, second to last row on the left in the aisle. Thank you for doing this. Uh, I've got a couple of questions. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what it means if relations between Pakistan and the United States deteriorate further than they already have, uh, what it means for Pakistan specifically? And secondly, uh, could you also address uh, uh, what, what Imran Khan's offer of citizenship to the Afghan refugees means for relations between uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan. Thank you. Um, so speaking to your um, second question about Imran Khan's offer, I mean, I think this is something that should have been done 
decades ago. I think it's a good move. Um, and I think it shows that Imran Khan, to some extent, is delivering on some of his um, campaign rhetoric to be more inclusive. Um, we didn't see that in the case of um, Atif Mia, who was the Ahmadi economist who was asked to step down because of his religious belief. But, you know, um, I think this is a good move in terms of Imran Khan. And because most of these Afghani um, refugees are now part of the Pakistani society. Um, they have businesses, they send their kids to school, um, they've married in Pakistan. So they're not going to go back. And also there's not really much to go back to. So I think this is actually a good thing for Pakistan to have um, more citizens who, who they could potentially tax if that you know ever comes, comes up. Um, to your first question of what would happen if the relationship between the U.S. and Pakistan deteriorates further. Um, I think it would be bad for the region, and I think it would be really bad for the U.S. war in Afghanistan. Um, having a bad relationship with Pakistan has not helped America in any way. It has not furthered U.S. interests in the region or beyond. Um, and I think, if nothing else, all of this aggravation always gets us back to square one, which is... Um, potentially the U.S. asking Pakistan to, to do it a favor or, or vice versa. So one case in point is right before Secretary of State Mike Pompeo visited um, Imran Khan and his new government um, after Labor Day, right before then he um, declared that they're going to cut coalition support funds. So they're going to go ahead with the, with the cuts that they had said earlier. Um, but then in July, um, the U.S. administration officials had sort of asked Pakistan to facilitate talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government. So to me, this seems like a signaling problem. You can't really ask Pakistan to use its leverage over the Taliban and the Haqqani network potentially and ask them to come to the negotiating table and then at the same time say, we're going to cut funds because you're actually not targeting them. So I think there's a, a messaging problem um, and there's an inconsistency in U.S.-Afghan policy, which kind of bleeds into its relationship with the U.S., uh, with, with Pakistan. Um, and that deteriorates it further. I don't know to what point they could deteriorate even more. I think this is a pretty low point for now. Um, you know, if it goes lower, um, it does worry me, um, especially when, it, when you consider the fate of Afghanistan. I would just say, I agree with everything Sahar said. I would say, of course, a further deterioration would be bad for Pakistan, bad for the United States, bad for the region, bad for our approach in Afghanistan. And I think uh, there is an awareness within the administration of that and an effort to put some kind of floor under uh, deteriorating relationships and, and even shore them up. Uh, on, the, on the offer of citizenship to the children of Afghan refugees, um, I think uh, that, it, that it was generous of spirit and, and a good thing. Whether he'll be able to stick with it, I'm not sure. But what immediately came to my mind is the fact that this very refugee issue is facing countries globally now the United States, countries in Europe, and so on. So it's not just Pakistan that has to deal with this. And the rest of us need to give thought to it as well. Well, I want to thank everyone for coming. Thank our speakers. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you, Dr. Khan. Uh, you're all welcome to join us for lunch upstairs. Walk out these doors, follow the spiral staircase. Uh, bathrooms are on your right once you get up to the second floor if you need them. Thank you so much. Thank you.